You're listening to the Co-Main Event Podcast. And now your hosts, Ben Folks and Chad Dundas. That's right. You're listening to another episode of the Co-Main Event Mixed Martial Arts Podcast. I'm Chad Dundas, alongside Ben Folks. We're both senior writers in MMA for The Athletic, and we meet here every single week to chop up all the prominent, newsworthy, and hilarious happenings in the world of mixed martial arts. Ben, how you doing this week? Doing pretty fantastic. How about you? I'm doing all right. Yeah? I'm not going to say pretty fantastic. That's kind of no, over the top. You couldn't, couldn't quite get there? Well, that makes it sound like you're just, you're doing the best ever. I'm doing, well... The best ever would be if I was doing like absolutely fantastic. I'm doing pretty fantastic. So pretty fantastic is like middle of the road for you. It's it's pretty good. It's not the best ever. Okay, I'm just trying to get a gauge on your uh, sliding scale here for how you're doing. I don't know about you. We spent the weekend at Sir Nigel's wedding festivities. Yeah. And one interesting thing was that that meant Saturday we didn't get to watch the fights live. Yep. We were ostensibly socializing with our friend group, and yet often what that actually looked like was you and I standing off in a corner somewhere with plastic cups of beer looking at our phones to check on the fight results. Well, I mean, when Uriah Faber comes out here and wins in 40 seconds, that's something I gotta, I gotta go tearing across the reception just to tell you about. I know. Yeah. And so, like, everybody else there to celebrate love and matrimony and stuff— and then their pleasant afternoon is interrupted my beat by you saying something to me and me shouting out, What? What? Yeah. No. When I first, I think I, the first thing I said was, Did you see Uriah Faber? You looked at me like something terrible must have happened. That's where my brain went right. When you said, Did you see Uriah Faber? I was like, Is he dead? Just like tell us. Just give it to me straight. I was going to say was hospitalized. Give it to me straight. Is he alive or dead? On his way to a local Sacramento area medical facility. So it was Will actually... Will he ever walk again? It was, it was actually uh, better than expected when yeah. I say he'd beaten a much younger man. In like 46 seconds. Yeah. Not so, bad. There you go. That was, that was what was up. Check the record, bud. Check the record, bud. Hey, if you want to make sure that the CME continues to kick ass and the discourse here remains independent and unfettered, the best way to do that is to support us through Patreon. We got three handy patron tiers available. Jump on board for as little as $1 a month, $5 a month, or if you want to be one of our capital G guys or girls, the gold standard at $10 a month. In exchange, you'll get a ton of cool extra stuff every week. We got our Wednesday live video chats. We got our Friday Power Hour podcast, which is basically a whole extra hour of the CME each week. We got the CME Patreon Movie Club, where this week we'll be watching the 1989 Patrick Swayze classic, Roadhouse. To be part of any or all of that exclusive stuff, head over to patreon.com slash co-main event and sign up today. We need your help. We want your help. And the more you help, the more cool stuff the co-main event podcast can do. You know what I did last night? What'd you do? Watch Roadhouse. Awesome, man. Congratulations. I don't feel like that's the appropriate response. Are you really going to do this? Are you going to make yourself look like a fucking idiot and come to the co-main event podcast movie club and pretend like Roadhouse is not awesome? Listen, when's the last time you watched Roadhouse? I've seen Roadhouse pretty recently, within the last five years. Okay. Because I am going to present the thesis on Wednesday Roadhouse is actually bad. Oh, God. You're going to look like such an idiot. Well, we'll see. 
We'll see. Won't Everyone we? is going to laugh their asses off you. You're, you know what? You know what? You're going to. I know you're going to do this. Coming up in here, quoting fucking Roger Ebert, like that has anything to do with anyone's enjoyment of Roadhouse. I look forward to it. Bring it. Yeah. Bring your stupid oh. arguments about how Roadhouse. I'll bring it. Is not good, as if that has nothing to do with the fact that you lost the little vote last week. I'll bring like it. if someone walked We're up gonna... to you at a party in a vacuum and was like, "Hey, man, you seen Roadhouse?" You would be like, "That movie sucks." You would never in a million years say that. You would be like, "Yeah, man, of course I seen fucking Roadhouse. It's awesome." Then we have See, a little a little vote, and you lose, and all of a sudden you think Roadhouse sucks. See, I'm gonna. This is exactly the point that I'm gonna deal with: is the idea that people are like, I like a few disjointed scenes from the film Roadhouse. I have not really, maybe even seen the whole thing from beginning to end, or nor have I thought about it at all. And I'm gonna say, yes, Roadhouse is awesome. No, I will not say that. I will not go along just to be one of the cool kids at the lunch table, Chad Dundas. I'm going to explain to you and to all the sweat hogs out there that Roadhouse is actually bad. Oh, I'm really looking forward to this. You are going down in flames just with this one. Fucking get ready. Gird your loins, my man. Just a weird hill to die on, Ben Folks. But if that's what you want to do, dick like I'm Sam Elliott. That's what you want to do. Wake up on uh, Thursday morning with about three Twitter followers. Wade Garrett, another character in Roadhouse, made to sound like he's in a. Goddamn 1950s Western. It's a dope name. Also a great way to look fresh and toss a little money in the CME coffers is to pick up a Cowboy Astronaut Cigarettes t-shirt or Dundasso t-shirt. Those are available all the time, on demand, whenever you want them, over at CottonBureau.com. Just go over to CottonBureau.com today and pick up some CME merchandise. We got music again this week from our guy, longtime friend of the podcast, longtime listener, Ras Jarborg. If you like what you hear from him on this episode, you can check out more over over at soundcloud.com slash S-T-H-L-M RAS. Stockholm RAS. Stockholm RAS. Three rounds as usual this week in the co-main event podcast. And round number one, Jermaine Durandamy has now won five in a row in the UFC and never actually lost her women's featherweight title. So why does it kind of feel like she can't catch a break? And in round number two, the California man is back. And hold up is Uriah Faber. Really going to tumble bass awkward into a fight with the king of cringe? And in round number three, what do you call a big group of heavyweights? A flock? A gaggle? A sleuth? In any case, the UFC heads to San Antonio this weekend with Rafael Dos Anjos, Leon Edwards, and a whole murder of heavyweights. All that plus, are you fucking kidding me? Just saying stuff in Master Tweet Theater. But first, like we always do about this time, let's do a little bit of listener mail. Listener mail. First piece of listener mail this week comes to us from David Peachy. Okay. Sure. He writes, so Ryan Hall is a Weirdsmobile's Weirdsmobile. <laughs> yes, he is. Feel free to discuss any of the following. Where are we going with this weirdo lackadaisical fighting style? Do they not teach wrestling at his camp? Whoa, ha, ha. David Peachy, hold on. They teach, it just seems like maybe they teach wrestling backwards. <laughs> they just, it's a, they do a different kind of thing there. Sure. Does his body actually resemble an orangutan's or is that more stance related or whatever else catches your fancy? You know what? We appreciate hearing from famous rugby player David Peachy. Yeah, maybe that. Well, maybe that's why he's taking kind of a uh, a negative approach to Ryan Hall's stance and body and fighting style here. When my own opinion couldn't be further from from that one. You're into it. I am way into Ryan Hall. Ryan Hall is everything that's great about mixed martial arts. Wow. Because you get one weirdsmobile who goes out here doing everything his own funky way, doing eminari rolls and spinning back. He's 
Ryan Hall is out there throwing spinning back kicks like somebody else throws a jab. He's like, making it work, too. That's the only strike he knows. He's making it work. Damn near knocked Darren Elkins' jaw into the front row with one of them. And I think that you do have to pause and appreciate what Ryan Hall is doing, I think, which is making the skill set he already has work without being like, okay, you know what? I need to reinvent myself as a blast double guy. He's not going to do that. And I think wisely figuring out if I did try to do that, it's not going to work that well for me. So like, let me take what I already have, like the, the stuff that already works for me. And let me figure out how to craft an effective game plan around that. Yeah. And that's, what's great about mixed martial arts. Cause that's what you do. That's why all of this, like imploring people to stand and bang and act like there's only one kind of fight that, that, that passes muster in the UFC is just ridiculous. Like that's, not why very many people got into watching mixed martial arts. We want to see Ryan Hall go out there with his weirdo fighting style and just befuddle fucking Darren Elkins over the court's three rounds. That's awesome. And by the way, looking just like he might fall asleep while he's doing it. <laughs> okay, when you say we want to see that. Everybody wants it. I don't everybody. know about everybody because how do you explain what is going on in the career of Ryan Hall at this point? Right? Because... Here you got a guy who won a season of the Ultimate Fighter. Yep. Uh, after that, you know, he he fights Gray Maynard, beats him. Uh, he submits BJ Penn with a really dope heel hook just early on in their fight at UFC 232. His reward for that, seven months later, is a fight against Darren Elkins, the kind of guy who can always make you look bad and is known for being damn near impossible to finish. He fights him on the prelims of an already mostly kind of forgotten streaming card on ESPN+. That does not seem like the UFC is saying, man, we are excited to be in the Ryan Hall business. Well, I think hypothetically, if there was one organization that would not appreciate Ryan Hall's awesomeness. Hypothetically. It's probably the UFC. But also, I think you do have to look at the inactivity. Like, he's he's 4-0 in the UFC. But he only fought once in uh, 2015, only fought once in 2016, didn't fight at all in 2017, then just once in 2018. Says he wants to be a little bit more busy uh, in 2019, would like to fight again before the end of the year. But, I mean, we talk about this all the time, the the embarrassment of riches that is the UFC's roster and the hard-charging live event schedule that makes it hard to focus on any one person uh, you know, no matter what they good, what they do or how good they are. And if you're going to only make these sporadic appearances, like, like Ryan Hall has over the last few years, like you're, you are going to get lost in the shuffle a little bit, but I mean, just the sort of unique stuff that he is able to do in the cage. The fact that he makes faces like he's Buster Keaton or something like he's a 1930s slapstick comedian is more of his demeanor rather than like a, a terrifying MMA fighter. Uh, I think he deserves some attention. And like you brought up the things that he's done in the cage, beating Artem Lobov, winning the season uh, 22 of the Ultimate Fighter at lightweight, for starters, then cutting down to featherweight and beating Gray Maynard, BJ Penn, and Darren Elkins in a row. Like that in and of itself, I think should tell you that Ryan Hall is not like a fluke or a joke. Like this guy is good at this and you got to take him seriously. He beat the goat. I mean, come on. Then he goes out there, and I mean, this fight with Darren Elkins, I think a lot of other people get finished by Ryan Hall and at like the end of the second round in this fight. Yes, when you get like a, a spinning back of your heel right upside your jawbone. And yet, don't you think that the UFC is going to come away from this 
and go like, all right, well, guess Ryan Hall's still around. I don't think that anybody's coming out of this and going like, all right, let's get Ryan Hall in a main event. That's what we need. It will be interesting to see what they do with him, especially since he's talked a lot about getting on that uh, fight card, upcoming fight card in, in Washington, D.C., which is really close to where he lives uh, and trains over there in uh, Virginia. But, uh, I mean, you got to give him someone of note at this point. It's not like he's he's beaten a grand total of zero nobodies in the UFC. Like, everybody that he's beaten is someone that you know hasn't lost since his professional debut uh, back in 2006, you don't count the the one loss he had on the ultimate fighter uh so man i feel like this guy's kind of legit really and he he has a fighting style that maybe you question how far it can take him because it does seem a little bit one-dimensional at the right, same but let's time. see somebody go out there and beat him yeah he's out there if it's so one-dimensional he's dropping darren elkins with spinning kicks and and punches in the second round like hard not to be impressed as far as i'm concerned with all of the stuff that Ryan Hall brings to the table. You will note that on his Wikipedia page, uh, he's he's referred to as an American grappler. Okay. So that tells you, first of all, where he's coming from. Uh, but yeah, man, like I feel like we've talked about this a lot. We've talked about it with people like Amanda Nunes and, and, and some various other people that the UFC doesn't feel like they're promoting. But I feel like in a guy like Ryan Hall, who's smart and articulate, and like has kind of a funky fighting style and represents this this grappling background. Uh, I feel like you have the opportunity to market to people who aren't just like the let them bang fight bro. You know right. what I mean? And like uh, those people are out there. And I don't think that they are an insignificant population in the UFC fan base. I think that you ought to be finding these people that seem like they uh, appeal to those folks and trying to push them a little bit. Like everybody who goes to a... a, a Brazilian jiu-jitsu class or a wrestling class or like takes a a, a passing interest in in like ADCC or, or like likes to watch Quintet or the Mundials or something like that like they're you damn right they're rooting for Ryan Hall every time he goes out there and rolls around the cage like he doesn't give a damn so I would I would like to see the guys like that get a little bit of shine man I also probably like people who are into parkour they yeah. probably like Ryan Hall's yeah. thing. Yeah. You know, and Ari Rolls and all that stuff. Yes. Movement coaches. Probably very into Ryan Hall. Yeah, he's Hall. big in the movement coach mm-hmm. industry. Yeah. Next question this week comes to us from uh, former President Thomas Jefferson. <laughs> okay. All or, right. In fairness, maybe just somebody else named Thomas Jefferson. Yeah, I, you know, you don't encounter a whole lot of... Like, I think if you were named Thomas Jefferson at birth these days... By adulthood, you would have been convinced by various factors to go by Tom. Yeah. You know, Tommy. Or whatever your middle name is. Yeah. T. Clarence Jefferson. Hey, Tommy Jefferson here for Jefferson Auto Parts. Thomas Jefferson writes, Is Mirsad Bektik bound to be one of those guys who could never break through the walls into top contender status, or does Team Alpha Male just have his number discourse? Ben, Mirsad Bektik caught a hot one yeah. from Josh Emmett. At uh, this UFC Fight Night 155 card, TKO'd uh, just before the end of the first round, four minutes and 25 seconds into the first round, in a fight where both these guys were just throwing heaters at each other. Like, this was one that just wasn't going to go that long. Uh, Josh Emmett is the guy who comes out on top. And for Mirsad Bektik, it has been a little bit of a rocky road since back in the days when he was 11 and 0 and lauded as one of the uh, the top prospects at whatever weight class he wanted to fight in down there 
Uh, he, you know, he got beat by Darren Elkins, who we were just talking about against Ryan Hall a minute ago. He, he turned it around a little bit, beat Godfredo Pepe and Ricardo Lamas in 2018. But now uh, he gets TKO'd by Josh Emmett in kind of a fast and furious fight here at UFC Fight Night 155. But I don't know, man. Like, I didn't come away from it thinking, like, we, we've got the book on Mirsad Bektik now. No, we've I We've seen the so best either. we'll ever see from him. I didn't feel that way. Especially because if you look at the Darren Elkins fight, that's one where he is just mauling Darren Elkins for most of that fight. And then gets kicked upside the head. And, I mean, that one gets put into Darren Elkins' ledger as, oh, there's Darren Elkins doing the thing he does, where he can just take an ungodly amount of punishment and still manage to be dangerously in a fight. I didn't look at that as like, well, that's a sign that Mirsad Bektik is never going to be anybody. And so, and then he comes out here in this fight against Josh Emmett. Josh Emmett's really good, man. Yeah. I, like, and you're right. Like the way both those guys were throwing, it could have been either one of them who got knocked out there. Like, so it didn't seem like he was outclassed by Josh Emmett or anything. Like, I think Josh Emmett is a really good fighter. Maybe he doesn't even get the, uh, the credit that he deserves all the way. Cause people just still thought like, okay, yeah, we saw him against Jeremy Stevens and that kind of halted his rise. And then people f- went and forgot about him a little bit, but I don't think there's any shame losing to a guy like that. And I, I still, the book is not written on Mursad Bektik. Yeah. He's only 28. I mean, you would like to see him go on an extended uh, run of success now after just being two and two in his last four fights dating back to 2017. Uh, but yeah, you don't want to, shut this guy out or close the book on him by any stretch of the imagination. At one time he had a lot of hype and was regarded as a top prospect. So uh, keep bringing him back. Let's keep seeing what he can do. Next question this week comes to us from our old friend, the cheeseburger walrus. Oh, good to hear from him. He writes, it would be an absolute travesty in all caps. Travesty. Nice. If we didn't at least shine a little light on the masterpiece. Also in all caps. I like the intensity of a fight. That was made official this past week. That's right. We are talking about newly crowned Bellator heavyweight champion Darth Vader versus number one contender dot 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 Chicago. Discourse this shit. Okay. Now we talked about this on the Power Hour. Ben, Bellator is out here playing with fire. They're going to try to take one of the fun positive things that they have going on in the promotion right now. Ryan Bader, champ champ, and screw it all up. Here's what's going to happen. Check Congo going to go out there, clinch the shit out of Ryan Bader, knee him in the groin one or two times, uh, win a split decision, hold down the heavyweight title for the next 11 years. <laughs> Just screeching, scraping out like and tight, but like split decision wins in every fight. Zero fun will be had. It's the thing, man. If you're Bellator, you ought to be clutching onto these gems that you have for all that you're worth, trying to put Ryan Bader over. Uh, as your two-division champion, the guy who just won the heavyweight Grand Prix. And now you are really uh, tempting fate, I think, with this fight against Czech Congo. I would say whatever it takes. Like, tell Czech Congo you need him to go get something out of the cellar and then bolt the door when he goes down there. And no matter what he says, don't let him out. No matter how, how many cries for pity you hear, no matter what he offers you, don't let him out. Yeah. Don't let him get a, have a chance to put his hands on the heavyweight title. I mean, don't you think, and I don't know if this is fair or not, but Czech Congo winning the Bellator heavyweight title, like the sound you would hear would just be the changing of channels nationwide. <laughs> Everyone the would, balloon deflating. That's it, the sound. It really does leave the impression that like Bellator had no other options. Like Bellator was looking around at the heavyweight ranks and they were just like, we ain't got anybody else. We just got to have him fight Czech Congo. Man, 
take some of the other existing light heavyweights and bring them to the buffet, man. Whatever it takes. Don't do this. What was TJ Tombstone doing? What was Beef Plant doing? Yeah, man, Beef Plant. He probably earned a title shot, right? Sure, sure. Like in our hearts. Or Jack Swagger. Have Bader fight Swagger. Bader versus Swagger. Swagger I mean, versus Bader. Just the poster alone will sell that fight. Two guys that know where they keep the weights, if nothing else. Uh, next question is we comes to us from Mike Lowry, though I don't know if it is the same Mike Lowry from Bad Boys. Okay. Isn't that the name of... Martin uh, Lawrence's character? Yeah, or no, it's uh, Will Smith, right? Mike Lowry? Oh, okay. From Bad Boys? Let's Isn't that see. him? Let's see. I'll read the question while you're looking that up. Or, or it could be former governor of Washington, Mike Lowry. Well, it's probably, that's probably him. Him and Thomas Jefferson are probably taking in the show together. Yeah, Will Smith is the Mike Lowry character, though. So how about that PFL? ESPN is fully embracing them, and the PFL is differentiating itself as an MMA brand. They have a live dashboard showing fight stats, exciting and ever-changing playoff seating, and of course, their million-dollar payouts. If you were a lower, middle-of-the-pack UFC fighter, why wouldn't you switch to PFL? John Howard made $37,000 in his last UFC fight, and Sarah Kaufman made $27,000. Their wins bring them one step closer to making 30 to 40 times that. Uh, a Uf- what a UFC brat would bring them shouldn't top 10 UFC fighters be all about the PFL. Discuss this, if you may. Yeah, uh, we talked about this a little bit, and I talked to uh, Sarah Kaufman about it some after her... You know, she showed up last week. Her fight got called off after her opponent came in heavy. They gave her the option to fight, but they were also like, look, you already have the points, so you're already in the postseason, the the like four-person playoff. You get your show and your win money. If you fight, you'll get 20% of her purse. But other than that, no real benefit to fighting. Plus, either way, like you're going to fight October 11th. So she was like, well, why risk getting injured when like just for 20% of your opponent's money? So... She opted not to take the fight and just move right on. And we talked a little bit about, like, you know, especially somebody like her who's been in a bunch of different organizations. Like yeah. what she saw as the, the PFL uh, unique selling proposition that they offer. And honestly, like, yeah, I, all these points are really good. Like the, the million-dollar prize thing, I think it's a little hackneyed, but it works. Yeah. It really works to just hold in your imagination as, like, here's what everybody's in it for. And since what we know about MMA fighters is that the pay sucks, Million Dollar is going to change some people's lives. And it's just like not dependent on do the matchmakers like you or do they think that they can be, you know, in a more profitable business if they put you up over somebody else. Like it's they'll they can make the fights, but then the the results determine who enters the playoff system. And then if you just win all the way through, you end up with a million dollars in the end. And there's nothing anybody can do about it. Yeah. And above and beyond everything else, just as it, it pertains to Sarah Kaufman specifically, like being in the PFL is probably just flat a better platform her, from her than, for her than, you know, getting lost in the shuffle in the UFC, where she almost certainly would if she were fighting uh, over there. And, and I guess in the women's division, it's not quite as, as crowded as in some of the men's divisions. And maybe if Sarah Kaufman could go on a run there, she could work her way up to number one contender status. But the mere fact that she's even in the PFL makes her a topic of conversation because we're all waiting for these playoffs to play out to see if we get Kayla Harrison against Sarah Kaufman, which for Sarah Kaufman is probably a pretty good spot to be in just in terms of you know getting MMA people to think about you and pay attention to, to what's going on. So you take all of that stuff together and then add in the fact that you could win a million bucks at the end of it. And I think that it is a pretty enticing package for a lot of people. It seems like a, uh, maybe at this point, the vast majority of MMA fighters 
are sticking with the UFC, you know, maybe because they're contractually obligated. I don't know, but also because there's that, there still is that uh, prestige that being in the UFC means that you are, that you don't have to explain to people what you do for a living. Kind right. Of. Well, and, and plus everybody thinks they're about to be the champ. Right. See, that's the other thing. And that, uh, I think when you see kind of historically what happens with fighters who have been more experienced and have been around the game a long time, worked for different organizations and seen how it actually works, I think then it gets easier for them later on in their careers to just honestly assess which is the better deal, regardless of brand name. The problem is by then a lot of them, they've used up the best of their athletic prime. And so they, they can't really do as much after that. But like, I think Sarah Kaufman is a good example of somebody who can still go out there and do it. And yeah, like she made what, uh, according to former Washington governor, Mike Lowry, $27,000 in uh, her last UFC fight. How long do you have to fight in the UFC? If you're Sarah Kaufman to make a million dollars. Yeah. Like it's just like, you could tell yourself, hey, maybe I'll break through and I'll be a champion. Even if you do get to the point where you get a belt in the UFC. First of all, you need them to give you that opportunity. Like they, You can't just seize it by sheer number of wins, right. no matter what you tell yourself. You need them to give you the opportunity. And then even then, it doesn't necessarily equate to like instant riches. Whereas if you're going to tell yourself, all right, I'm going to go in the PFL. I'm going to give it one year. Uh, in that one year, I might have to fight and win six times. But if I do it, then I get a million fucking dollars. And that is a much better chance for a big payoff than hoping I'm going to be one of the like 1% in the UFC. Yeah. Do we know what they get paid per fight in the PFL? I, don't, I well, Sometimes don't we know. do. But I mean, I th- Sean O'Connell talked about it. I mean, it was not bad. Like it was, you know, all that on top of then getting the million dollars at the end. So yeah, yeah it's comparable. Especially for something like Sarah Kaufman. It's not like she was walking away from, you know, a six-figure payout in the UFC. Right. Last question this week comes to us from Vlad T. Impaler. Okay. If I'm not mistaken, the T here stands for the. Yeah, always a popular middle name. The. When are fighters going to realize that no one gives a fuck about their record? Tony Ferguson and Justin Gaethje will remain the two greatest fighters who ever lived, even if they lose their next 10 fights. Young GSP was awesome. Trying to never lose my belt, GSP was boring as fuck. Why has John Jones suddenly become more interested in squeezing out a split decision than simply beating the shit out of pretenders? Are we going to have to watch five more years of John Jones winning gentle games of touchy nose? I can't. I can gently touch your nose more often than you can touch mine in the next 25 minutes before he claims to be the greatest ever. Uh, I think that there's a, a, a subtly valid point to be made in the, the idea that once it's all said and done as a mixed martial arts fighter, your record is sometimes among the least like measurable or like the gives the least accurate measure of, of who you are as a fighter. You know, there are people like a Randy Couture, for instance, who does not have all that impressive of just a numbers record because he was constantly out there fighting the best. But at the same time, the only reason that we know who Tony Ferguson and Justin Gaethje are is that they put together an impressive string of wins. Yeah. Justin Gaethje wouldn't even be in the UFC right now if he hadn't gone, you know, whatever it was, 15 and 0 or whatever it was being the uh, World Series of Fighting lightweight champion. And we wouldn't be talking about Tony Ferguson if he hadn't won a bazillion fights in the UFC in a row. Like that's the thing that makes the plight, the current story of Tony Ferguson interesting to people is that like, we love to watch him fight. He always wins. His opponents look like they came out of a meat grinder. Why hasn't this guy got his title shot? Yeah. 
And if you have a bunch of losses in a row, then that definitely seems to matter. People will use that against you, and the UFC will use it against you, or like any promoter will use it against you if you go into contract negotiations on that. I do, though, think that there is, like, the, the subtly valid point, I think, is we have seen a lot of fighters who, when they get to where they feel like, okay, now I really have something to lose, or I have more to lose than I have to gain, and when they're good enough to where they can have a choice between like playing it safe and taking risks in order to put on a show, then they reasonably make like a kind of a a calculation there and decide the thing for me to do here is just to make sure I win. Like I don't need to go out there and do anything crazy and take any chances and let this other guy have a chance. I can just win and collect my money and keep stacking up records by, you know, taking a little bit more of a conservative approach. It's not like it's that easy for everybody, though. Like, I mean, it, it's, yeah. it's it's something that somebody like John Jones or GSP can do because they can do absolutely everything. Right. So they can really choose what kind of fight this is going to be. Yeah. But it's, that's not a huge concern, I think. We've talked about that, though, in the past with, like, the conflicting messages that the UFC will send to people, which is, like, we want you to go out there and throw huge shots and give us fireworks and give us this exciting stuff and maybe we'll give you a bonus at the end maybe we won't uh, but also if you lose three in a row you're out and if you stack together seven wins in a row and, every, and you're talking about a title shot as soon as you lose one that dream is over yeah I, it is tough like there's those competing pressures from all sides in this sport yeah and i would say two additional like either supporting or counterpoints to that point number one like let's say you're george st pierre or john jones I'm not sure that being an exciting fighter is going to earn you any more money. Like, I don't know that you're necessarily going to make more money per fight if you are exciting than a guy like George St. Pierre would or a guy like John Jones would. They're already making a fair amount of money. So, like, let's say you're John Jones. Let's say, hypothetically, you make $3 million every time you defend the title. You don't think that fifty grand performance uh, fight of the night or performance of the night thing is really going to motivate him? Well, that that, but also like, would you rather fight safe and make three million dollars eight times, or would you rather fight exciting and make three million dollars four times before you lost your title because you fucked around and got knocked out or something? Or like, the like, math is pretty easy to do there, and not just lost your title, but maybe went in there and got your jaw broke or something, and now you're on the shelf for even longer. Yeah. In addition to that, I was thinking about this earlier, and I could be wrong. But can you think of a bunch of examples of people who became big time MMA draws merely on the basis of being exciting? Because, you know, the obvious examples would be like Nick and Nate Diaz. But I would say that those guys became draws for a lot of the stuff that they did outside the cage. Well, I would say that a guy like Conor McGregor has been exciting, but clearly he became a star based on a lot of what he did outside the cage. Like, I can't. I right off the top of my head, I can't think of someone who I'm like definitely a big draw only because they went out there and fought in exactly the way that we are told they're all supposed to fight. Donald Cerrone. Cerrone is like is a good example, but again, like I mean, he that's loses not, some every once in a while. Right, but then but, I mean, the UFC has used that as like Dana White has said, like when Donald Cerrone has complained about pay before. Well, hey, you got to win them all. Yeah, but like, and Donald Cerrone's thing is also that he's the motherfucking cowboy. Okay. He wears that hat. He, he does. fights a million times a year. Like if if he didn't have the Donald Cerrone persona, I'm not sure that we would know him to the extent that we do. Mike Perry. Again, like you got to have like something extra, don't you? You got to have like face tattoo, a face tattoo, or, or like whatever it is. Florida man that makes Mike Perry uh, interesting to watch. Like 
I don't know. I'm sure people will tell me if they think I'm wrong, but it's hard for me to, to generate someone who became like a huge star just by being exciting. I mean, Justin Gaethje, honestly, is like as close as I can come. Right, but he also, yeah, he had that huge like undefeated streak. Right. And he was the one telling us like, hey, this isn't going to last forever the way I fight. And I know that. Yeah, being super exciting, but going like one in four doesn't get you that far. It's, well, I mean, you you got to choose the time to go one and four. It helps to have been like 20 and 0 before right. you go one yeah. and four. Anyway, that's going to do it for listener mail this week. If you have a question, comment, a concern that you would like to air to the podcast in future weeks, you know how to do it. You go to the website, comainevent.com, and click the link in the top right-hand corner of the screen that says email the podcast. That'll get you in touch with us. While you're there, go ahead and check out the Breakfast of Champion newsletter. That comes out every Friday morning to catch you up on the news and notes that we miss on all the days that we're not recording the podcast. Stuff always happens. News always breaks. The newsletter itself is short. It's informative. We would love to tell you it's funny. And if you don't like it, it's really easy to unsubscribe. As for right now, though, we are going to go ahead and get started with round number one. There's actually a lot of stuff we could talk about here about the UFC Fight Night 155 main event. Women's bantamweight fight, Jermaine Durandamy, ends up finishing Aspen Ladd in just 16 seconds. TKO, she lands the first or second punch she threw in the fight right to the dome. Aspen Aspen Ladd uh, went down and Herb Dean stepped in to call off the fight uh, after a couple of strikes on the ground there by GDR. Let's start with the stoppage, and then maybe we can move on to what it means for Jermaine Durandamy, and we can talk a little bit about Aspen Ladd and how she looked at the weigh-in. This was a pretty quick stoppage. Uh, Herb Dean caught a lot of flack, as you will, as as it happens on the internet for it. We got a boatload of listener mail about the the stoppage. What was your what are what were your thoughts on the stoppage? I guess specifically uh, and in general, kind of what is going on in and around the reputation of. Uh, star MMA referee Herb Dean right now. You know, this was a tough, tough one for Herb Dean. He had to make a call there, and yeah. I can see why, seeing what he saw, he thought, all right, got to jump in there and stop it. Because Durandamy connects with that clean right hand on the jaw, and it Snappy. spins Aspen Land around, and then she's plummeting to the mat face down. Yep, she went down on all fours, not unlike... Your boy Junior Dos Santos against uh, Francis Ngannou a couple weeks back. Right. Well, and usually when you see somebody get spun around and fall like face down on the mat, then the referee is already going to be taking a really hard look. Yeah. And I feel like she landed on all fours, like caught herself before she landed on her face, but also just kind of stayed there for a second. Did yeah. not really move. And you could see Durandamy coming in with that left hand, and it looks like, okay, she's not reacting. She's not preparing herself for this blow that's to come. And it looks like she's just about to get smashed. Right. It did not appear that she was intelligently defending herself in that moment, which if you're out there in the cage and you're the referee, it's all happening really, really fast. Yeah. Uh, and it was almost like... Not that it was the same sort of stoppage, but it was almost like the Robbie Lawler stoppage to me where it looked like Aspen Ladd was in a lot of trouble. And then if you go back and watch the replay a couple times, you watch it in uh, 
in slow motion. It seems like she kind of tries to slip with that punch, like kind of roll in the direction of that punch so she doesn't get hit as much by it. And then she's trying to grab, she's trying to pick Jermaine Durandamy's ankle, basically, as she kind of sits up. Uh, but as it's happening, as the action is going, like, I don't know that it would be humanly possible to detect all those factors and be like, okay, I should not stop this fight. Yeah, see, that's the thing. We are going to be affected by what we see happen immediately after the stoppage. And Herb Dean doesn't really have that opportunity. He has to make a split-second decision. He doesn't know how it's going to look a second and a half after right. the decision. And so, yeah, like, especially because Jermaine Durandamy comes in there with that follow-up left, and it looks like Aspen Ladd is about to just get pasted. Right. And Durandamy kind of misses with that punch. Like, it hits Aspen Ladd, like, on the collarbone, spins her over onto her back, and basically in a better position to defend herself. And then she seems like she's back with it, and like you said, like, sitting up, you know, looking for some kind of a defense. And by then, Herb Dean has already stepped in there. And so it's like, I understand if I were Aspen Ladd, I would be upset about that stoppage, yeah. and I, I would... I think she handled it really well afterwards to just not go overboard complaining about the stoppage and and not pick on Herb Dean the way a lot of other people would have, uh, but to also be like, yeah, I wanted to keep going there. And yeah, I mean, it's just another though example for me that the referees in MMA have an incredibly difficult job. You might, it's almost an impossible job, yeah. really, considering that if you stop it too early, we're going to complain about that, and if you stop it too late, we're going to complain about that too. So like. The timing has to be absolutely perfect or one way or the other, you're going to get kind of dragged for it. And there are times where you can see stuff like this happen that looks initially, oh, no, they're in deep trouble. They're really bad off here and the referee needs to save them before their opponent just absolutely smashes them. And then, you know, maybe one one instant goes by after that and you realize, oh, no, wait, that's just how it initially looked. But yeah. the referees don't have that luxury. So I, I can't get too mad at, at Herb Dean there. I can understand. But I do think, if you ask me, was that an early stoppage or not? Yeah, it was an early stoppage. It was a, yeah, it was a, a sort of an early stoppage. But it's also like arguing about the stoppage seems like one of those perennial arguments that for whatever reason, we just fucking love them. Like we will talk about uh, a mistimed stoppage days and days after the fight. It's just one of those MMA related uh, topics that people will just spend an inordinate amount of time breaking down like a, uh, like in football going over a slow motion replay, trying to figure out if, uh, if something was a catch or a fumble or I know whatever. How much you love that. Yeah. Did, did the refs get this one wrong? Was this a fumble or was the guy's knee down? We're going to take, six days to go over Zapruder film type footage and, and figure it out. For whatever reason, it's just an argument that captures the imagination of the social media crew. Well, and but in a fight like this where it's the main event, yeah, it seems like the UFC had positioned Aspen Ladd in this situation where they want her to be a somebody. And they put her in this headlining spot against Jermaine Durandamy, a former champion, like you said, never never actually lost her belt. I mean, it's a tough spot to put someone in if you want that person to be a star for your organization. And to have it stopped early and so soon into the fight, it makes you feel like, did we really get a chance to find out what we wanted to find out here? Yeah. Well, it's almost like the... Uh, I mean, she did get cracked, but it's almost like the, the stoppage that doesn't necessarily make either person look that bad. Like... I will watch Aspen Ladd fight again, and I didn't think this, this was the ultimate verdict on where she stands in the women's bantamweight division. And for Jermaine Durandamy, like, good win, I guess. She went out there and, and did what she had to do. On the Durandamy topic, as I said before, she has now won 
five fights in a row in the UFC. Uh, she lost to Amanda Nunes via TKO back in November of 2013, for God's sake, uh, before, you know, taking two years off. And then she comes back and hasn't lost since then. She won three fights in a row at women's featherweight, including beating Holly Holm to win the, the title. And then, of course, had the uh, the saga where she was at least uh, reported as being unwilling to fight Chris Cyborg and was stripped of the title. She's dropped to women's bantamweight and has won two fights in a row now, beating Raquel Pennington and Aspen Ladd. Uh, she seems really, really good. And at the same time, is also appears to be in kind of a weird and tough spot. Yeah, and she knows it too. Did you hear some of the stuff she was saying before this fight where she seemed to be relaxed about it and laughing about it, but was just like, yeah, hey, I know that I am basically a persona non grata when it comes to the UFC title picture in any division and that I, I'm going to be buried forever, basically, but I'm just going to keep showing up and trying to win fights and we'll see how it goes. I mean, I guess it's the best possible attitude you could have. And it made her, because she did suffer a huge image hit, not just in terms of like her relationship with the UFC, but yeah. uh, how fans looked at her after that. Because it's, I mean, that's probably like the weirdest title reign we've ever seen in the UFC. Yeah, one of them for sure. Uh, and especially there at Women's Featherweight, where they had an awful hard time getting the division off the ground. Right. Yeah. And so, I don't know. It doesn't seem like you come out of this fight with the, like, if the UFC were so inclined, to not want to really push Jermaine Durand to me, uh, a quick stoppage like this might be all the excuse you need. To just be like, okay, well, we'll see. We'll see what right. happens. At the same time, you're in this division where or you're in both of these divisions, really, where Nunez, is, Nunez has kind of cleaned him out. We're kind of we're scrounging around for people for her to fight. And here you got Jermaine Durand to me, a winner of five in a row uh, in two different weight classes and you know had the title stripped from her. And from a pure competition-based standpoint, like she makes a pretty good contender, I would think. But you're absolutely right that it doesn't feel like the UFC is suddenly going to wake up and decide to put a bunch of money in the Jermaine Durandamy basket. And the man of news has already beaten her. Um, what about Aspen Ladd's weight cut or weigh-in? I mean, the weigh-in did not look good. It looked terrible. I, it's kind of hard at times to like uh, – since you don't have all the information to judge what you're seeing just based on the optics, but the optics were terrible here. Like had to get the hoop out with the towel. It seemed like she could barely even step up onto the scale. She's visibly, visibly shaking and trembling, grimacing, grimacing, uh, not necessarily from nerves no. as the, uh, Commission doctor said after he thought maybe it was nerves of a big fight. I disagree. Yeah, I, I do as well. It seemed like maybe more from dehydration, uh, and that's a tough weight, weight cut for her, we're, we are led to believe. And so, like, especially to go out there and get finished this quickly, stoppage or no, leaves the impression, like, were you did you put yourself in a position where you couldn't necessarily give your best? Right. I, she would say that the weight cut, that she's used to bad weight cuts before, as she's been through it, that didn't have anything to do with getting hit with that shot and getting dropped. But we know, don't we, that you don't, improve your chances of taking a blow without it affecting you right. by cutting a whole bunch of water out of your system the day before a fight. Yeah. That does not help anything. You can say like, maybe it didn't make the difference here. Fine. It does seem like if that's, if you've accepted that that's what weigh in day is going to look like for you, you might want to go back and reevaluate how you got there because it seems like there's a, there are better ways to do it. And I mean, it's not like Aspen Lad's not going to go up to one forty five. Like, just with her size and her frame, that's 
that's not where the future is. You've got to think, she's just got to figure out how to make 135 without it being quite so extreme there at the end. I agree. All right, let's do Are You Fucking Kidding Me? And then we will move on to round number two. Ben, I'm going to do my Are You Fucking Kidding Me? Because it's the rare positive Are You Fucking Kidding Me? About Jermaine Durandamy's response today on the Ariel Helwani show about Aspen Ladd, uh, you know, having a hard time making the weight. This is her response to a question like, what would have happened if she had come in heavy, if Aspen Ladd had come in heavy? Jermaine Durandamy said she gladly still would have accepted the fight. And here's her quote. She should be healthy. She should not suffer. There's no fighter who should go through that. Are you fucking kidding me? Like Jermaine Durandamy out here seemingly being completely reasonable about a lot of different things this past weekend. Your are you fucking kidding me is that somebody is being reasonable. Yes. In this sport, that'll get that'll get it done sometimes. <laughs> Chad, my are you fucking kidding me? I think this is also from Ariel Helwani's show. But you know who was on there? Talk about an upcoming fight. Huntington Beach bad boy. Tito. Tito Ortiz. Having that fight at 210, I saw today. Uh, you know, he's having that fight with Alberto Del Rio. Yeah, at that, the 210-pound weight class. That was the one where Cruiser when, we, weight. when we saw it, we were kind of like, okay, so this is what we're doing now. And you know Tito Ortiz is not just going to roll in there, fight Alberto Del Rio and Combate Americas and just have it be a normal, like, hey, we're just out here to compete and see who the better fighter is. No, we're going to make it into a political blood feud. Oh, good. Here's a quote from Tito Ortiz. <laughs> this is the very beginning of it. It's very enjoyable. Uh, I'm not into politics. <laughs> I'm not a politics person. I'm not a Republican. I'm not a Democrat. I'm an American. I want the safety for my children's future to be number one. And our president's putting that for our country. I want that to happen. Now, on the opposite side, Alberto Del Rio, he wants open borders. Anybody to be able to come into our country whenever they want. And I don't believe in that. So I think that's kind of where we butt heads. What? Are you fucking kidding me? <laughs> You're going to have this fight with Alberto Del Rio and Combate Americas. And the platform you are going to take is, for one thing, that you are not a political person, but you are a huge Trump supporter uh, who is upset and concerned about a potential open border policy. Are you fucking kidding me? Fucking kidding me? Did you me? think this one through? I don't think you did. I mean, it's Tito Ortiz, so we know he did not think it through. Fucking kidding me? Fucking kidding me? Alberto Del Rio supports open borders in the argument of Tito Ortiz? You know, I don't know what his position is. I miss his platform yeah. on that. The last debate Alberto Del Rio was in, I must have, I must have turned it off early. Yeah, I didn't know that. Yeah. About him. I knew he's a Medicare for All guy. I knew that. <laughs> uh, favors a voucher system for schools. Fucking kidding me. Fucking kidding me. That's going to do it for round number one. We will be right back with round number two. Chad, about how you spoiled this one for me, coming up to me at Sir Nigel's wedding, telling me Uriah Favor done did the damn thing in 46 seconds. But still, the next morning, I'm sitting there with my hangover and my coffee, getting the laptop out, and I hear California Love hit the speakers at the whatever one center in Sacramento, and damn it, damn it if it doesn't feel good. Especially when you can be assured, going into it, that you're not witnessing a funeral dirge. 
You're in here to see a triumphant return for 40-year-old Uriah Christopher Faber. Comes out after two and a half years away, fights this young kid, Ricky Simone, who I always forget that that's how his name is pronounced until I actually watch him fight and the announcers remind me that it's not Ricky Simon. Goes out there and just blasts the dude upside his head, drops him, jumps on him for the finish, and next thing you know... We are seriously having a conversation about Uriah Faber and Henry Cejudo. Yeah. First of all, I'm not going to say I, I gave you a spoiler. I'm going to say I gave you an important news update during <laughs> okay. Sir Nigel's wedding right. about the triumph of Uriah Christopher Faber over Ricky Simon here. Uh, yeah, man. 46-second TKO victory in his return. Not too shabby for the California man. Looked like he got popped once during this fight. Like maybe he was a little bit stumbled and then after that... You might argue Ricky Simon got a little too eager to go in there and finish the job against Uriah Faber and got caught. Uh, looked like he handled it in the in the aftermath about as well as you could have here. But yeah, man, we are we talked about on the Power Hour Uriah Faber specifically mentioning Henry Cejudo mentioning him in his post fight interview as a. Maybe not a deciding factor, but a driver behind what Uriah Faber thought he could get done returning in this division. And now here we are. These guys are bickering on Twitter. Cejudo is out for a little while with his shoulder surgery. But at the same time, in the wacky world of the UFC, where they're out here trying to make that paper, you know Uriah Faber versus Henry Cejudo is probably one of the bigger draw fights they could get done in that weight class. Really, though? Really? I mean, Uriah Faber still moves the needle. Really, Don't Chad? you think? I just, I'm i not don't. sitting here telling you it's the right move. I'm sitting here telling you we've seen their willingness to do stuff like this with Uriah Faber in the past. I know, but man, okay. He's 40 years old. He came back. He won one fight against a guy who, if he had beaten Uriah Faber, I don't think anybody would be like, yeah, you're you're high up on the list of possible contenders for Henry Cejudo next. I don't think anybody was saying that about Ricky Simone, even if he had pulled off a really impressive 46-second TKO, you know, in the other direction here. And so to just be like, okay, Uriah Faber, we still know his name. Henry Cejudo seems not uninterested in it. Therefore, that's enough. Especially when he's got belts in two divisions and he's got really credible challengers waiting in each of those two divisions, one of whom has a win over him. Yeah. Like, there's just so many things that make more sense. And yet, you're right. It's not that hard to picture the UFC's way of thinking about these kind of things going just like, okay, Uriah Faber, that's a name people know. Book it. Right, yeah. It seems like that's the uh, era we're in in this sport, especially when uh, some people are trying to get trying to recoup their investment, let's say. Uh, but at the same time, doesn't that make this feel like this is the retirement return that initially goes well, that makes you think, is this the worst thing that could have happened? Like, does this end super badly at some point for your guy Uriah Faber? Well, I mean, he's probably not going to get hurt, but at the same time, Henry Cejudo is out here messing people up. Like, he's really good right now. Yeah. And Uriah Faber, even though I think Uriah Faber is really, really good for a 40-year-old. Yeah. Yes. I'll give him that. He might be the best 40-year-old out there right yes. now. Yes, he might be the best 40-year-old fighter that we can find. Although Daniel Cormier did just turn 42, right? Best 40-year-old in that weight class. Okay, all right. Yes, best 40-year-old bantamweight. And still, I don't... 
it's not that I'm like concerned that he's going to go out there and get smashed and either he will be suffering lifelong consequences from it or even that we'll be like this was a farce and we never should have gone along for the ride. Just what do you tell these other guys? What do you tell Aljamain Sterling and Joseph Benavides? Especially Joseph Benavides. Because he's like, hey, Henry Cejudo keeps talking about being the savior of flyweight. That he's the guy, he's keeping the division around. Okay, I have a win over him at flyweight. I just went out there and smashed the only other credible uh, contender that could have jumped up to challenge him at flyweight. And now here I am. I'm waiting for him and I'm ready. And you're going to tell me that you're going to go ahead and give this fight to 40-year-old Uriah Faber because he beat one dude who nobody was talking about? Yeah, I mean, if they are going to let him keep both those belts, if you're Joseph Benavidez, maybe you're not totally locked out. Aljamain Sterling is the guy who seems like he's going to, if indeed they did this, which again, I don't recommend, but I understand. It seems like Aljamain Sterling would be the guy who would kind of have to take a back seat. Uh, unfortunately. And I guess that brings up the question, like we talked about this a little bit on the Power Hour before this fight had even happened, like what is the right thing to do with Uriah Faber here? Like that's one of the things that makes a matchup with a guy against like Ricky Simon so tricky. Ricky Simone. Is it Ricky Simone? Yeah. Oh. That's what I was talking about. Every time I always think it's Ricky Simon, you see his name on paper and then when the announcers start talking, you're like, oh yeah, Ricky Simone. Okay, well I... I'm going to do my best. Okay. Uh, The matchup with a guy like Ricky Simone is tricky because if you are going to return and take that kind of fight, if you lose it, do you then figure you're going to walk away with a bad taste in your mouth? You're going to be like, I'm going out on a loss to a guy nobody's ever heard from heard of before. But if you win, like that can't be it, right? You can't come back for your triumphant out of retirement fight and beat Ricky Simone and then be like, hell yes, this is this is much sweeter than when I beat Brad Pickett several years ago. I'm satisfied now. No, you're back, man. One way or another, you're back in the game. And that means we need to talk about next steps. Okay, we practical to, next steps. We need to steps. talk about practical next steps Here, I'm gonna for the some, California man. I'm going to throw something out there for you. I'm just... I'm just Taking it out of the back pocket, heaving it up in the air in your general direction. You can stand there and catch it, or you can run for the hills. Uriah Faber versus Peter Young. Oh, I'm running from that. I'm running. Why from that. though? Why though? Well, like, what are my options? Is it is are the only two options Peter Young or uh, or Henry Cejudo? Because both of those probably go poorly for Uriah Faber. Okay, but then here's the thing: if you can't beat Peter Young. Then you shouldn't be fighting for the title, right? I guess that's true. I guess if you wanted to teach Uriah Faber a lesson, well, then, not, yeah, it's not an after-school special. It's not an after-school special. I'm not trying to teach him a lesson, but I'm trying to like get us an actual litmus test here to tell us something. And then, if it goes the way that you would think that it would probably go, just given age and things like that, then if Peter Yon goes out there and smashes Uriah Faber, it's like, okay, well, there's an end to that, and he's positioned himself as a really exciting next contender. I guess there's a certain utility in it. That's for sure. Uh, but have you seen Peter Jan fight before, right? Yeah. You know what, well, how that goes. Mm-hmm. Yep. And you, can you imagine Uriah Faber slowly getting picked apart and ground up on his feet over the course of 8 to 15 minutes okay. against the younger, faster, better striker Peter Jan. Would you prefer, let's see, because I'm looking at the rank, the UFC's own like internal rankings here. Ricky Simone was 15. 
just barely in the top 15 there, holding on in the, the bantamweight division there coming in this. How about we'll just move up a couple spots then? We don't want to go all the way to number four, Peter Yan. That makes you uncomfortable. Fine. How about we'll just go up a couple spots to Song Yedong? All right. How about you are already, you you're putting you wanna, me in you a bad position that? here, making me try to uh, talk about practical next steps for your ride favor. I because I don't know that there is one. I think this is a useful exercise that highlights the the problem. If you can't sit here and be like, I would sign up to watch your eye favor against one of these contenders, and I would feel confident that it's going to be a reasonably compelling fight that's really going to tell us something. If you can't say yes to your eye favor versus the number four bantamweight, how do you say yes to him versus the bantamweight champion? I mean, I guess given all of those options, I would rather see him fight Henry Cejudo, honestly, because at least then it feels like we're ha- we're doing it for a reason rather than just let's watch your eye favor get beat up by Peter Yan. If it was anybody else, like coming back after years away, you wouldn't just be able to beat the number 15 guy and go to a, a title fight. True. You, like from the number 15 guy to the number four guy would be a pretty big leap in itself, but at least, you know, credible. I don't know what they should do, man. I'm flummoxed. Peter Yon. Anyway, Peter Yon. that's going to do it for round Favorite number Yon. two. Sir Nigel Longstock is here. We're going to do a little Master Tweet Theater. It'll be uh, fun to catch up with him after his big weekend. That starts right now. Well, it's that time again. We welcome back to the show noted theatricalist, friend of the podcast, Sir Nigel Longstock. Sir Nigel, how are you today? Good day to you, sir. I am right back on top again. Yeah, I'm glad to hear it. You know, it's been a while. Been a while since we've had you on here. Seems like some big stuff's been going on with you. You want to fill everybody in? Tell them what's been happening in the life of Sir Nigel? Indeed, sir, I do. I have finally been cast in a play for the stage. Okay. Uh It was wonderful. A traditional comedy in that it ended in a wedding. Really? Indeed, sir. And I, best of all, got to play the groom. And everyone liked it so much they let me keep the ring, which is something wardrobe does not usually condone. Uh, Wait a minute. Did this happen Saturday, by any chance? Well, it did, sir. Yes, it it played Saturday. It opened Saturday, as we say in the theater. I... I don't know how to say this. It feels like what you're talking about is your actual wedding, which Chad and I both attended this weekend. Yeah, we were there. Remember? You got got legally married this weekend. What? I'm pretty certain. What? There was a a service. Yeah. uh, Very nice service, I thought. All your friends and family were there. A bunch of people flew in. My God, sir. Then why did they applaud? I, I think that you might have mistaken for a play yourself actually being joined in the bonds of holy matrimony. My dear God, a man hears live applause for the first time in 20 years and you spring the... Mm. Mm, sir, that's well, what I say to you. Mm. Well, I know this is going to be a real adjustment period for you. Fortunately, we have you here anyway for Master Tweet Theater. On with the show. On Yes, the show must go on. And this time it actually is a show and not you making large decisions with your life. Uh, did you bring us a theme? Indeed I did, sir. The theme is, Methinks the tweeter doth protest too much. Okay. All right. 
that's a potentially fun theme that we're just never, ever going to stick to. You know, it doesn't seem that, that hard to stick to this one, though. We've been it's, down this road hey, before. You, if you look at MMA Twitter, it's mostly protesting too much. Yeah. That's mostly what it You're is. You're saying you could just kind of throw the, the darts at the board and maybe get lucky with five in a row? Yeah, it's possible. Let's All see. Right. Let's see what Sir Nigel can do here. Let's see indeed. Sir Nigel, when you're ready. Gentlemen, I assure you my commitment to this theme is one that will stick. It's a wedding joke. You like it? No. I can't say I do, no. Damn it. Well, let us begin. Do you remember the theme, sir? Is it, methinks the tweeter doth protest too much? It is! It is, sir. That is the theme of Master Tweet Theater. Let us begin. Tweet the first. What did I spoil? Lady shrugging emoji. Nothing, cry laughing emoji. There wasn't one spoiler there. I know better. Twitter gets all butthurt. I know my spoiler boundaries. Okay, so somebody is uh, like saying that maybe they've been accused of spoiling perhaps a TV show or a movie. Spoiler accused. Yes. And they deny it. That feels to me like maybe a Colby Covington. Isn't that kind of his thing? Yeah, but he wouldn't get on there and deny it. He would say butthurt, though. He that would. Is a, a, butthurt is on brand. Colby Covington would say. So you're going Covington here? Yep. Boy. Uh, right out the gate. Who would be tweeting about TV? You know who do- actually does? Bisping tweets about TV. Okay. Because we got Sir Nigel here for the first time in a while. You think maybe he was just looking for an opportunity to do the Bisping voice? Maybe he wants to come out the gate with the Bisping voice. Okay. Mm, both fine guesses, both liable to diagnose others with butt hurt, and both wrong, and it's Jessica I. God damn. See, I See, almost... did say lady shrugging emoji. Oh, which you did yeah she identifies yeah, I, with it i almost said just guy but i was like there's not one glaring typo or anything it's there's just no, it sounds just like a you know regular old english speaker no punctuation either sir we'll I see i feel like that could have been conveyed via delivery but that's fine I'm not what gonna, what I'm not gonna complain now how dare you give notes at this phase of the process i will complain sir. at a later date we are recording Yes. Tweet the second. I strongly disagree. Twitter is full of great info and fun personalities. Interesting ideas being exchanged frequently. This is an MMA person? It is. I know who this is. To someone else who has criticized Twitter, saying it is bad. Just coming out in favor of a blanket approval of Twitter. On Twitter. I got this. You do? Yep. So I'm going to let you go ahead and take a swing at it. Uh, I'm going to say Elias Theodoro. No, it is Ben Askren. It is. It is Ben Askren standing up for Twitter shortly after he sustained a closed head injury. Coincidence? (laughs) You know, I think it's in response to Ryan Hall saying that Twitter and social media are no good and you're just better off ignoring it. And Ben Askren's like, well, then, like, how, where else would you talk about Bitcoin? And, like, you know, the the deplatforming of valuable political voices in the discourse. All right. Things like that. Yeah. As well as guys who hate Ben Askren and tell him he should die. Well, yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure he has to mute some people. Yes. Tweet the third. We're going to do something a little different here. This tweet. I know. Yes. Okay. Ben, All right. Ben does not like change, ladies and gentlemen. I fear a, change. A pattern you might detect in his personality. <laughs> mm-hmm. 
Anyway, we're going to do something different. This tweet is originally tweeted by MMA History Today. That's okay. At MMA History Today. I follow that one. It's a good account. And I want you to guess who has retweeted it. What? It's highly unorthodox, but okay. Who, who retweeted this tweet from MMA History Today? <clears throat> July 14th, 2007, in what was one of the most significant fights of his career, name of retweeter finishes Eves Edwards by knockout. Oh, man. July 2007. I saw this one because I saw Eve Edwards later respond to it. But it was him getting... His response, I believe, was to respond to it by saying, Why are you bringing up old shit? <laughs> because he was the one who got knocked out. Uh, Eve Edwards, that's why. He's, he's a must-follow for me. But who was it? Who was the other person? I don't know. You got any guesses? Is it like Matt Sarah? Josh Thompson? No, he beat Josh Thompson, didn't he? You're asking the wrong guy to remember historical occurrences. Both fine guesses. Both liable to be fighting in 2007. It was Jorge Masvidal. Gamebird. Yeah, why is he bringing up old shit? He's got enough new shit to bring up. He's not bringing the old shit. He just saw it. And then they retweeted today, and he was like, "Well, hey, that's me doing something good." Okay, I mean, I can see retweeting that. Yeah, highlight of your career. Yeah, I can't believe that guy was fighting in two thousand seven. Wait, who's protesting here? Uh, well, hmm. you know, (laughs) third. That was the third tweet. Tweet number three here. Indeed. Yes. Well, it was precious to me. I like the new format. (laughs) I think we all had fun. It's amazing how long Game Bread has been fighting. It is. You just wanted to say Game Bread, didn't you? Bread game. <laughs> Tweet the fourth. This is what makes me thrive every day. We all have our own paradise. This is my paradise. Hashtag Huntington Beach. I work very hard and obey our laws. <laughs> I work very hard and obey our laws. Exclamation point. Okay, I was just going to ask. Did that finish with an exclamation point after obey our laws? Indeed, sir, it did. Tito Ortiz yeah, that's on some right-wing like anti-immigrant stuff. That's got to be Tito Ortiz. It is Tito Ortiz. Just going on Twitter to make it clear he's been obeying the law. Also, okay, that and he does protest, protest too, too much. much. Yeah, Indeed. I read your book, Tito. You didn't always obey the law that, that closely. Let's just say that. When he says our laws, he might mean anyone's laws. <laughs> <clears throat> Let's go to Tweet the Fifth. Yes. This is a short one. Okay. <clears throat> Fuck the Bucks. Fuck the Bucks? Fuck the Bucks. A capital B on Bucks? No. Fuck the Bucks. Lowercase b. Capital fuck. B-U-C-K-S. Indeed. What do you got? Fuck the Bucks. Uh, Starbucks? Is that what it is? I don't know. Do you... Are you asking me if I think he meant Starbucks when he said? I mean, there are numerous the there are numerous bucks that could be fucked here. If anyone calls Starbucks the bucks, he probably doesn't say fuck. <laughs> you uh, gonna meet me down at the bucks later for a latte? That's geez. terrible. Um, and I'm pass. Can I pass? <laughs> well, you won't get points. I don't know what the, <laughs> Just let me think about it for a second. Uh, Phil Baroni. Oh, that's not bad. That's not bad. Just because I don't have any idea what it's trying to say. So therefore, 
Phil Baroni. I'm going to go with Phil Baroni also. Both fine guesses, both based in sound test-taking strategy, and both wrong. It is Nate Diaz. Fuck the Bucks. He doesn't need the money. He's doing it for the love, he said, getting into his Honda Accord. <laughs> okay. All right. So he he protests too much. You think he does actually love me the thinks, Bucks. Me thinks. Me thinks he does. <laughs> well... Was that it? Is that all? That's it. That's it. That's all. I believe Ben won by attrition in this case. (laughs) That's the only way to win Master Tweet Theater. Uh, What else you got going on, Sir Nigel? You know, it's funny you should ask, sir. I uh, recently received a little bit of work from my agent, uh, Mr. John Nash. Okay. Who follows me on Twitter. uh, And he has cast me in a lovely film entitled Children of a Lesser Godzilla. (laughs) And what role do you play? Well, I play Godzilla. (laughs) Yeah, you do. Well, that was Master Tweet Theater, and that was Sir Nigel Longstock. Thank you, sir. Counting Francis Ngannou versus Junior Dos Santos. The UFC is going to be on big ESPN a few times during these current few weeks. Next up, Rafael Dos Anjos against Leon Edwards from the AT&T Center down there in San Antonio, Texas. So that's the welterweight main event. And aside from that, you got three separate heavyweight attractions on this televised main card. Andre Arlovsky versus Ben Rothwell, which the, the is a time machine. Affliction rematch you didn't know you needed. Like you got in a damn time machine fight. You got Greg Hardy versus Juan Adams. The uh, fight Juan Adams asked for and then earned by losing his last fight. And then you got Alexi Olenek versus Walt Harris. So you got a lot of big guys going to be throwing that leather around in the in the cage. And then with what will probably be a hard-fought and stylistically interesting 170-pound main event. Let's start there. Rafael Dos Anjos, the former lightweight champion, beat Kevin Lee in May of this year and now uh, takes on sort of the rising Leon Edwards. Who do you got here? How do you think it's going to go? Leon Edwards, by the way, winner of, I believe, seven in a row. Yeah, that's a tough one to call. That seems like a really close fight to me. And I don't know. I I could see that one going either way. I guess... If you made me pick, maybe I say Leon Edwards, but I don't know. Yeah, I, that is a really close fight. What surprises me is that this would be the one where we're going, okay, main event on ESPN. Yeah, it, feel, it, feels a little, Leon it feels a little weird. I think in total, it's a pretty decent card. Yeah. Like, I think you got, well, I don't know, anytime you've got a main card with three heavyweight fights... You could mess around and get the other kind of heavyweight yeah. fights. You want the first kind of heavyweight fight, not yes. the second kind yeah. in these three heavyweight fights. Chances are you're probably going to get at least one stinker, though. You'd, you'd Ideally, you want three heavyweight fights that come in with a combined total of no more than seven minutes cage time. That's in a perfect world. But you also got you know other funds up. James Vick versus Dan Hooker, Alexander Hernandez versus Francisco Trinaldo. Not bad stuff. Uh, and the welterweight fight, I think that's a super close fight and against two or, you know, pits two really good fighters there. It just seems like 
is this are we going for the extreme hardcore vote here on ESPN? Cuz that seems more like an ESPN plus kind of play, doesn't it? Yeah, it makes you wonder exactly uh you know what the what the analogy here is for these ESPN events if they are thinking about them like they are full on network TV broadcasts or if they are thinking on them more like they would be an uh, an FS1 event back in the in the Fox days. Or do you think in midsummer rings are probably going to stink anyway? So what the hell? Maybe, maybe that's what it is. Uh, maybe this is the kind of fight card where the ratings build over time because people are, you know, texting each other or whatever about all these crazy heavyweight knockouts. That guy Greg Hardy is on ESPN. I know one thing about him. Yeah, <laughs> quick turn on the TV. One really good thing about him. Uh, Leon Edwards comes in off back to back wins over Donald Cerrone and, and Gunnar Nelson. So if he were to go out and beat. You know, the better known, more advanced in the uh, division, Rafael Dos Anjos, that wouldn't necessarily be a surprise. It would be very much on brand, I guess, for what Leon Edwards is doing. Uh, at the same time, as I've said before, Dos Anjos is one of these dudes where when he is on and he's really good, he is really damn good. So I agree with you. I feel like it is a hard main event to call. Uh, Greg Hardy and Juan Adams here, Ben. Hardy fights again on a big ESPN nationally televised thing. This is is this his first appearance on ESPN, or what do we do here with him? Previous? No, he was on uh, Cejudo versus Dillashaw, so he had that fight where he lost to Alan Crowder. Then he beat Dmitry Smolyakov uh, on ESPN Plus, and now is back on the actual television network taking on Juan Adams. So it seems that. ESPN and the UFC are in agreement that they want to see Greg Hardy in spotlighted moments. At least uh, ESPN, if it has a hand in it, is not, it would seem, raising too many red flags, at least. Well, and it's we find Greg Hardy at an interesting crossroads here, too. Because, like you said, that fight against Alan Crowder, where he goes in there and if, when he, he can't knock the guy out right away and then starts to fade and then commits a foul that costs him the, the, the fight there, gets disqualified. And then rebounds where the UFC goes and signs Dmitry Smolyakov just to feed him to Greg Hardy and he gets steamrolled. And then the UFC does the thing that it does where they're like, oh, wow, that guy was really awful. What the hell? It's almost like somebody went looking for somebody awful. I don't know how he ended up here, even though that is clearly how he ended up here. And then now you had Juan Adams, who had been really angling for this fight. And like you said, by losing his last one, then it's like, okay, well, maybe he's not too scary a threat. Like, we joked about this exact possibility. Right. Like We joked about the thing like, oh, hey, if you lose this fight, then maybe you will get Greg Hardy because then they won't be as concerned that you'll go out there and beat him. Yeah. And then that's exactly what happens. Yeah, and it is an interesting crossroads for Greg Hardy, like you said, because we keep asking the question, kind of, why Greg Hardy? Like, clearly he came to the UFC with some previous notoriety. Some I would baggage. Not, I would not say he was famous. I would say he was more infamous. And so he is a person that uh, the public at large has heard of. He is a person that the sports watching public, the ESPN watching public has certainly heard of. And so he brings uh, that notoriety to the cage. But at the same time, like I kept coming back kind of to the idea of like, even in a shallow division, like heavyweight in a world where the UFC has like 500 fighters under contract, why in the world 
so enthusiastically to throw your support behind Greg Hardy. Because the UFC, over the course of Greg Hardy's very short tenure there, has given the impression, not that just that it's willing to promote Greg Hardy, but that it's kind of giddy about it. Can't wait. So excited about him. Because it's not like a situation where Greg Hardy was so good that they were like, well, we don't feel morally right about it, but we simply have no choice yeah. but to like put Greg Hardy in the premier mixed martial arts organization in the world. We can no longer deny him. It was a thing where they like plucked him off the street in a lot of ways, plucked him out of these much smaller organizations and and couldn't wait to see him mature into like a fully realized mixed martial arts fighter. And if you're going to keep doing that, then he's got to win this one. Because I don't know if you can justify to me keeping Greg Hardy around, especially as like a main card television fighter, if he's going to start out one and three or one and two. And you know what? This might be uh, the first fight that we've seen him in where he is actually a slight underdog, according to at least some of the odds makers. Uh, one of the lines I'm looking at has Juan Adams at minus 115, Greg Hardy at minus 105. Some of the other ones have them even at minus 115 or minus 111. Uh, but this is the first fight, it seems like we're going into it where people are like, eh, he might very well go out there and lose this one. Yeah. And you're right. If he does go out there and lose this, then what do you, what do you say if you're the UFC? You still really want this guy to be a thing. I guess. You're still going to throw him on main cards, it seems. I mean, this would be the time. If he, if he did indeed lose, this fight, this would be the time where maybe you would be like, uh, pull kind of an Aaron Pico and be like, okay, we tried this. Maybe, uh, maybe he should take a couple steps back here. Maybe fight on the prelims. It'd be real handy to have a, uh, a smaller feeder league that you could send a guy like this down to, to, to get some a contender seasoning. series, perhaps. Yeah. Contenders. Well, I mean, maybe see if, uh, Dmitry Smolikov is still looking for work. Yeah. See how many fights in a row you can book Greg Hardy against Dmitry Smolikov. Run that one back. Yeah. Like it's the Harlem Globetrotters versus the, the generals there. I mean, uh, Greg Hardy already fought twice on Dana White's Tuesday night contender series. So, it might be kind of weird to send him back down there, but maybe that shows that they have the willingness to do that. I don't know, man. Like I just, I still come to this Greg Hardy fixation that it seems like the UFC has just wanting to know why. Yeah. Just like, it seems like the chance that he would become a breakout championship level, enormous cash cow for the UFC is so slim that like, why would you take the chance of bringing this person who is, uh, in uh, in any normal walk of life, like unilaterally reviled. Okay, here's a theory as uh, that I will offer as a potential answer to that question. Not even sure I believe it, but here's just one possibility. What if it's because after Dana White took a bunch of like flack for the decision to sign Greg Hardy and to get behind him and to begin with, what if Dana White did his Dana White thing where? His sheer stubbornness and the ability that he has as the one guy who gets to make so many of the decisions for the UFC. If he was like, no, I'm right about this. This is a good thing to do. And we're just going to keep pushing it no matter what anybody says. And I will never, ever consider the possibility that this is not the thing to do. Yeah. it's. I mean, that's kind of how it feels. And that's how it will feel if they keep kind of pushing him, even if he loses this fight to Juan Adams. Who knows, man? Who knows? Let's do uh, Just Saying Stuff, and then we will get out of here for this week. Ben, what is your Just Saying Stuff? Chad, I got an interesting email today. Did you really? That's right. 
I got this email from Bellator PR. Oh, is this about the Featherweight Grand Prix? The featherweight Grand Prix. Because that was going to be my just saying stuff also. Okay. Well, I'll say my just saying thing about it, then you can say yours. The matchups are set yeah. for the first round of this Featherweight Grand Prix. Uh, one in particular caught my eye, Chad. I'm going through down here. I'm looking at, you know, there's some interesting stuff. Daniel Strauss, Derek Campos, Sam mm-hmm. Sicilian mm-hmm. here versus Pedro Carvalho, uh, Manuel Sanchez versus Taiwan Claxton, all this good stuff. But then I see Pat Curran versus Adam Borix. That's correct. The undefeated Adam Borix, fresh off his finish of Aaron Pico. I'm just saying, Chad. Hashtag Borix business? Whoa. Are we trying to get into the Borix business? I mean, that's a nice matchup with Pat Curran. Like, that's going to tell you some stuff against a really tough guy in Pat Curran. I'm just saying. Just saying. I mean, I guess I'm just saying, number one, hell yes on these pairings, because this looks like something that I can get into. And number two, I am kind of glad we got into this thing without Aaron Pico. Like, that seems like the right move here. I was worried Bellator was going to roll him right over uh, into this World Featherweight Grand Prix, even though... Like, it seems like he needs to go back to the gym and, and retool some things and, and uh, get a little bit more seasoning. So I think leaving him out here uh, is the right move. Pitbull versus Archuleta. Hell yes. Uh, uh, Claxton is a guy that has been a, a a prospect in Bellator for a long time. So he's an interesting addition here. Uh, like you said, Pat Kern versus Adam Borix. Hashtag Borix business. Borix business. There's just a lot to like here about the Bellator Featherweight Grand Prix rankings, and I'm glad that they are doing this and that it looks like they are doing it the right way. I'm just saying. Yeah, Aaron Pico, he's probably going to have to get himself into the tournament by winning an alternate fight against John Lineker, don't you think? His best chance to uh, win the whole thing. Yeah. Just wait for the finals to roll around and then win an alternate bout. Yep. There you go. In an MMA tournament. In any case, that's going to do it for this week's Co-Main Event Podcast. We will be back next week to tell you about all the stuff uh, that happens at this Rafael Dos Anjos Leon Edwards fight card. Don't forget, we got the live chat on Wednesday. We got our uh, movie club rolling out on Wednesday. We've got the athletic text live chat on Thursday. You and me are both going to be out of town on Friday, so we'll have to figure out if we're going to roll out a power hour. If we are, we might have to record that a little bit early, but we will get back to you guys on that. As for right now, though, we are done. We are through. We are out. You know that uh, Patrick Swayze suffered a kind of a serious knee injury filming Roadhouse? Well, let's not give away the, the farm here. we got to save some stuff for the movie club. I'm just, this is a little taste. Did he blow his knee out doing Tai Chi on the uh, the banks of the pond? Uh, apparently some of the, the stunts were pretty uh, intense. Pretty intense and painful? And yeah. That's the kind of, he's going to sacrifice for his art. That's the kind of guy Patrick Swayze was. Also, according to IMDB, it was a real toss-up who used more hairspray over the course of the film. Patrick Swayze or Kelly Lynch, the female lead. I see what they did there. I see what they did there. That's some trivia. the trivia section? That's in the trivia. I don't know if that counts as trivia, but I guess I'll take it. It meets every definition of trivia. It meets every definition of trivial. I know that. Come on. Wednesday, that's when it goes down.